Hey everyone, welcome to our second to last week of our Mark Bible study and welcome to my home. We are in a little bit of a quarantine, tis the season, so we decided to just record this teaching from my computer right here in my home and I kind of love it. I want to just pretend that you guys are filling my living room right now and that we're all just going to come together and dig into God's word. So this was quite the week in the book of Mark, uh, chapter 13, <laughs> kind of daunting, right? I kind of thought of it as like the vegetables of the Mark study, but good job getting through it. And my hope today as we dig into chapters 13 and 14 is that the hope that came off the pages to me would do the same for you and that you would actually feel greatly encouraged by this. So settle in. I hope that this study, this teaching just feels comfortable to you. Look, I even have um, my women's ministry prop. I feel like I should have a succulent or something green <laughs> behind me, right, to make it legit. But let's get started, guys. Okay, we started in chapter 13. And again, I see... <laughs> The chapter starting with a bit of an awkward moment. We've been here before. So what's going on? Well, Jesus and his disciples are, are leaving the temple. They're leaving Jerusalem and they're headed east. They're headed toward the Mount of Olives. And one of the disciples, it doesn't say which one, kind of sounds like Peter, but he actually says something totally normal and natural. What does he say? He says, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And it makes sense that he would say that because as they're leaving the city and going up the, the Mount of Olives, they're gaining an altitude. And so they can see all of Jerusalem and they can see the temple. So he says this totally normal thing, but what does Jesus say in response? He says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He's like, yeah, those buildings, they're going to burn. <laughs> and it's so awkward. And the text continues. It says that they sat on the Mount of Olives. So imagine them, you know, climbing a bit of a, with the elevation gain, and they sit down maybe to catch their breath. And they're sitting opposite the temple again. And four of the disciples want to have a follow-up with Jesus, which makes sense. They say to him, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Okay, so here's what I see in Jesus's response in this conversation on the Mount of Olives. It's like Jesus is saying, I hear you. You want a sign. And he begins to tell them things that they will see and hear, right? He talks about um, hearing rumors of wars, and he talks about earthquakes and nations rising against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms and famines. He says, you want a sign, but I worry that if you are going to be looking for signs that you will actually be led astray. Okay. You are going to see these things and you're going to hear these things, but if you are looking for what you can see and hear, you're going to get confused. Because those things, they're going to happen, those wars and those natural disasters. Those are going to happen, but it doesn't mean that the end of the world is going to happen the next day. It's like he's saying, don't put your faith in what you can see and hear. 
And that fits into a lot of his teaching so far in the book of Mark. He said, you can't be sure that those rumors will mean that the day of the Lord is coming. And those signs that you want, they're not going to prepare you for the end of the world. What they do mean, what those earthquakes and, and wars and just chaos, what those mean is that you live east of Eden. It just means that you live in a chaotic, broken world that's still waiting to be restored. But then he kind of transitions in verse 9. He says, okay, I just told you things you can't be sure of, but here's what you can be sure of. You can be sure that you will suffer. He says, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to the councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. So what's he saying here? (laughs) Now, I think it takes a little bit to understand this um, for what it is, but I think that what Jesus is doing here is actually encouraging his disciples. Okay, does he give them the details that they want? No. But it is an encouragement because this entire chapter, chapter 13, upon closer study, I think we can say that this is about Jesus preparing his disciples. Okay? He doesn't leave them in the dark, but he also doesn't overwhelm them with the details that they think they need. So instead of giving them the answers that they seek, he says this, here's my expectation of you guys. Be alert. Don't be afraid. Be alert. Stay awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. He keeps repeating it, and he follows it with this promise that those who endure to the end will be saved. Okay, let's just stop right now. Before we get into kind of the the details of this, let's ask our questions. What do we learn about Jesus from chapter 13? We see that Jesus knows the future. And that stresses or highlights his deity, that he is God. Jesus is showing his disciples and therefore us that he holds the whole world in his hands, that he knows our future, and that we can exhale into that. So what do we learn about ourselves? We learn that we don't know the future. And we learn that we weren't made to know the future. We can know that we will suffer. Probably not to the extent that these first century Christians would suffer, but we do know that we will suffer, just like the disciples. Right? East of Eden, this world, it's going to throw its punches and life is going to knock us down. There will be surprises that we would rather not come our way. And often the way of the Christian life does take us right through the heart of suffering. We've talked about that. But what can we know? What, what will lift our heads from this text is that Jesus knows his children. He knows us. He calls us his elect. And he knows our future. That's enough, isn't it? That's all we need to know right now. Like the disciples, we may not get the answers and the details and the the signs that we want from Jesus, but he knows our future. And, And really, if we got those details, if we got all of these 
answers that we think we need, I think we would find ourselves actually more stressed and more anxious. How is this good news that Jesus knows the future and that we don't have to? Kind of go back to the context of Mark. Think of this time with the disciples. At this point, Jesus's words were probably more confusing than comforting, don't you think? But what would happen shortly after this conversation on the Mount of Olives? Well, many of Jesus's predictions came true. The disciples would see Jesus himself going before the councils, going before the government. They would see Jesus rejected by those closest to him. And then the early church would suffer so much persecution, as we read about this week in the book of Acts with the story of Stephen. I mean, Peter and Paul would both be martyred for their faith. John would be exiled to an island. And we know that true to Jesus' words, actually the temple itself would be ruined in 70 AD in a war between Rome and Jerusalem. Not one stone was left upon another. So as the disciples, as that early church faced these events, I can't help but think that they remember Jesus's words. And instead of coiling back in fear, they would walk toward it with confidence, knowing that their friend and their Lord and Savior Jesus was in control and they're on the other side, just as he said. See, chapter 13 is not really like this, this mystery to decode about when Jesus is coming back. It's really an encouragement that points to the sovereignty of God because Jesus is God and God knows our future and we can take great comfort in that. Jesus is preparing his disciples and therefore us in chapter 13. Okay, well, let's move on. Chapter 14 opens with, or I'm sorry, yeah, chapter 14, it starts with this plot to kill Jesus, and then it goes into the story of Jesus being anointed at Bethany. So let's talk about this. What's happening here in this scene? Let me start reading in chapter 14, verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at a table, and a woman came with an alabaster, alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. All right, so maybe this story was um, a little bit more familiar to some of you, but it was so fun and rich for me to, to dig into it to a new depth in these last couple weeks. So here's Jesus, and he's left Jerusalem. Think of how packed Jerusalem was as, as um, Passover was drawing near. And so they retreat back to this house in Bethany, the house of Simon the leper. And this woman comes. And the book of Mark doesn't give us the details, but we read in our homework this week that this is Mary. Mary, who is the sister of Lazarus and Martha. Um, and she comes in. And she breaks this flask or this alabaster jar, and she pours it over Jesus's head. Okay, so she doesn't just, you know, take one drop of oil and put it on his temple like we would with our essential oils. But it says very intentionally that she breaks the whole thing and she pours it over his head. And there's kind of this sidebar conversation, this conflict, right? where the other people around are being indignant towards her and saying, how dare she? This money could be given to the poor. 
I mean, what she was pouring over Jesus's head was close to a year's salary worth of this ointment, of this oil. Okay, so two things that I just want to observe from this. I think that we already know that Jesus cares for the poor, don't we? Why? Just last week, we saw him in the temples, like throwing a righteous temper tantrum because of how the poor was being treated. We saw him elevate this poor widow. He has an eye for the marginalized. He has an eye for the poor. So that doesn't stand in this moment. But I also think what's interesting is that Mary was really used to people being indignant toward her, right? That story of her and her sister where Martha is indignant toward her because she's just sitting at the feet of Jesus while Martha is trying to get on tready. So I just thought that that was interesting. But what is Jesus's response to her in chapter 14? As she's getting scolded, Jesus speaks up and says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, listen up, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Okay, let's talk about this again. What do we learn about Jesus from this scene? I love this. Just like the disciples were being prepared in the last chapter, Jesus here is being prepared for his death and burial. Okay, so we saw that Jesus is God. But now what we're seeing in this scene is that he is the soon-to-be crucified king. We've used the title, the anointed one. Anointed one, meaning the one smeared with oil. This is exactly what's going on with Jesus here. Okay, let's slow down and think about this, guys. She pours an entire flask of oil on Jesus's head. So Jesus would have smelled like that oil for the next several days. That oil wasn't just immediately washed off of him, but he would have carried the scent of this act of worship with him for days. So as he was beaten, as he was crucified, as he was laid in the tomb, that oil would have remained. As the crown of thorns was pressed into his head, that oil would have still been on his temples, in his hair. As he was carrying his cross up the hill of Golgotha, that oil would have still been dripping down his ravaged back into his wounds. Who is Jesus in this scene? Well, through the eyes of faith, would we see and marvel at the nature of Jesus that is revealed. Ladies, just like the whole book has been hinting at, Jesus is the crucified king. The crucified king. So maybe here in this moment, we have seen an answer to our questions. Why has Jesus been hushing demons when they have seen who he is? 
Why has Jesus given pause to the people when they have seen his kingship or they've seen his power and his authority? It's because Jesus would not be a king of the people's making. Jesus would not be a king before he got to Jerusalem, before he got to his place of suffering. He would not be a pawn in the people's hands to be the kind of king that they thought they needed. Jesus did not come to give the people what they thought that they needed or what they expected. He would not come to be a king that would just give them a temporary rule or give them temporary relief from Roman rule. He came to be the king that has been written of from before time, from even before Genesis. He came to be a crucified king. He was not willing to take shortcuts to the throne, even when people wanted to declare who he was, a demon or someone who had been healed. He came to be both the suffering servant and the Messiah and the forever king. And I think that what Mary does to him in this scene reveals this. Even in his humiliation, he would be anointed as king. Even as he was beaten, humiliated, and carrying shame, that oil reminds us that he is king. That's what we learn about Jesus in this scene. What do we learn about ourselves? Well, what I learn about myself from this is that I want to be like Mary. I want to want Jesus more than I want answers. I want to just want Jesus more than I want this false sense of control that might come with some details about my future or about how things are going to play out. I want to be like Mary. I want just communion with Jesus. I want to be a worshiper. I don't want to be calculated in what I give him, but I want to be willing to be broken before him and to pour out my everything. I want to be like Mary rather than Judas, willing to give a whole year's salary to him rather than use him to get 30 pieces of silver. I want to be like Mary rather than how the disciples have seemed at times where they just wanted the glory that comes with following Jesus. But the question then that presents to me is, how can I be ready to worship a crucified king? How can I become ready to share in his sufferings? Right? Mary seems to understand what is going on here as she prepares him for his burial. The stumbling block for the disciples and for so many others seems to be okay with her. We don't know exactly what she understands, but I do want to ask the question, how did she get there? How did she become maybe okay with the fact that Jesus was going to be a crucified king? Well, I think we get some hints from the other gospels when they tell the story of her sitting at his feet. How can we be okay with this upside-down kingdom that says 
Glory comes through suffering and exaltation comes through humiliation. I think her example speaks to us. We sit at his feet. We choose communion with him rather than our to-do list. We, we become okay with the slow and steady building up of our faith by being with him. So where's our good news in this story in chapter 14? Like we saw in our homework, Mary's story, her example, it stands out to us in the middle of stories of betrayal and greed and denial. And just like Jesus said, her story would be recorded to be shared with people thousands of years later. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And here we are, thousands of years later, pulling her story out in a women's Bible study, letting her teach us, instruct us. It's like she's screaming from the pages, guys, choose what is better. It is better to slow down and to learn to worship at the feet of Jesus than it is to be Martha who's busy working and, and in strife for Jesus. Choose what is better. Choose Jesus. Our good news is that once again we see that what Jesus said would be true comes true. Again, we see the sovereignty of God. So the story continues and goes into the story of the Passover. And we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I do just want to uh, take note that the Passover, here where Jesus uh, celebrates the Passover with his disciples, he reinterprets it as a meal that would recognize his imminent death. And again, we saw that just as Jesus said would come true, even if it was just his disciples going in to prepare the meal, it happens just as he said, but also there's a note that just as the Old Testament said, Jesus's life would unfold in that way. So if you look at um, verse 21, Jesus says, for the son of man goes as it is written of him, right? The Old Testament is the script for the New Testament. The Old Testament specifically is the script for the weak of Jesus's death. Again, this consistent message through our text this week, that God is sovereign and holds the future, and that things happen just as Jesus said they would. That is our good news and our comfort. But let's spend our last bit of time on this scene in Gethsemane. Starting in verse 32. It says, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. 
Okay, a couple observations. Ladies, did you notice that Jesus falls on the ground? I mean, how things have turned. This entire book, on repeat, has shown men of authority and women falling before Jesus, a nod to his royalty, to his deity. We have seen Jesus go and meet the distressed and the troubled and the sorrowful and bring them hope and help and healing. But now, what is going on? It's Jesus who is falling on the ground. Here is the God-man, the King, And his frail humanness is so evident in this garden. He falls, he staggers, he's distressed, he is troubled, he is so full of sorrow that it feels like death. What does he ask of his best friends, of his disciples? He asks them to remain here and watch. But then he invites his kind of the inner circle. He invites those three disciples, Peter, James, and John, further into the garden. Why? I think he just didn't want to be alone. I think he's terrified. He is greatly distressed and troubled. He does not want to be alone. Ladies, we are supposed to understand the human nature of Christ from this scene? Do we sense how scared he was? What are we supposed to learn about Jesus here? We've already seen that he's God. We've seen him getting prepared for his death, and here we are supposed to see that he is fully man. Mark's been making this point throughout his story, right? In little things, just like Jesus needing to get away and be alone, or Jesus being hungry, were these hints that Jesus, while he is fully God, he's fully man. But here, it's like the subtle irony that in this dark and ominous garden is when we see his humanness revealed. Do we sense how badly he did not want to suffer and that he didn't want to be alone? But I said that this is preparing him for his death. Do you see how it's preparing him? See, in his human nature, he was truly wrestling with the will of the Father. He didn't sin in this moment, of course, but he was truly asking God, is there another way? Is there any other option except the cross? Is there any other way for salvation, Father? Please. It's like Jesus is working it out. And by working it out, he was being prepared. I mean, this tenuous and intense time of prayer was preparing Jesus to be our sacrifice. You know that feeling we get when there's something still kind of hanging in the air? Maybe there's still two options for something, and it makes us just feel um, just not at rest right? But then even if it's a really hard decision, when a decision is made, we can then be prepared for it. I think that that's what's going on with Jesus here. He's saying, if there's any other way, please. Because in his deity, in his godness, he knows what's coming. 
He knows the physical suffering. He knows the shame and the humiliation. And he knows that he's going to be forsaken and separated from the Father. But by working it out, he's being prepared for his suffering. So this is a second way from our text that we see Jesus be prepared for the cross. But I think there's something important for us to grasp here, something kind of intellectual, a way that we want to make sure our our thoughts are clear about this. So why is it important for us to understand that Jesus had to be fully man? He had to be fully in our nature to be our sacrifice. Well, something that I've learned is that from this scene, we see how Jesus is our representative. Okay, we see that in this garden. So where are the disciples while Jesus is working it out with the Father? They're asleep. Okay? And we we see the irony here as Jesus had just told them, be alert, be alert, stay awake, stay awake, be on your guard. And here they are, sleeping. But follow me, follow me here. Guys, what do you hear Jesus praying? He, He talks, he calls God Father. And he says, yet not what I will, but you will. Doesn't that sound like the Lord's Prayer a little bit? The Lord's Prayer, where Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. Are the disciples praying that right now? No, they're asleep. Jesus is praying it. And it kind of shows us what Jesus is doing. He's being the obedient son. He's praying the prayer that he taught them to pray. And so we can see Jesus like as their representative saying, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done. Jesus is revealed as the son of man. He's being revealed as the obedient son and as the perfect representative for those disciples. I mean, think about this. Think of Adam back in Genesis in a garden of plenty. He failed to submit to God's will. But here's Jesus in a garden of loneliness, wrestling with this fear and staggering under the weight of this coming suffering. Adam, in a garden of plenty, reached up to grab the fruit of his own will, trying to grab a life where he could be God. But what about Jesus? No. Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And now we see Gethsemane as like an anti-Eden. Adam failed in Eden, but Jesus conformed his will perfectly to the fathers in Gethsemane. Eden was set up for flourishing and blessing But Gethsemane was filled with a stench of death and betrayal and denial. But Jesus endured this anti-Eden 
that we would live forever in a place even better than Eden. So what do we do? What's our take home, ladies? I think it's a call for us to stay awake, to be alert, to plant ourselves at the feet of Jesus and to be prepared. What does that really look like for us, guys? How can we make sure that we really have a plan for that? Well, I think from that first scene on the Mount of Olives, I think that it's a good invitation for us to give up our love of control, to be okay if we don't have all the answers that we think we need. In a way, it's an opportunity when we don't know the future, when we don't know when things are gonna change or get easier. It's an opportunity for us to rejoice that we are not God. We were not built to know all the details of our future. We are invited to exhale and relax in Christ. We are invited to be like Mary, to find a regular posture at the feet of Jesus. It is a far better place to be than bustling around trying to wear all the hats and balance all of the spinning plates. And I think there's even a little nod from Gethsemane that instructs us. If Jesus wanted communion with his disciples, if Jesus saw the value of not being alone, of finding strength in others, then I think we should too. If we want to learn to suffer well, if we want to learn to trust Jesus in hard times, I think we really need to prioritize coming together. We need to prioritize community. We cannot do this life alone. We need to invite others to pray with us. We need to invite others to see us when we're frail, not just when we're feeling strong and glorious, like Jesus on top of the Mount of Transfiguration. But in humility, invite others to see us when we feel weak. Jesus was the perfect human. He displayed great humility. He showed us the way to be human. We can be so thankful for that. And that's what we have this week, ladies. We have one week left. I'm not going to pray to the computer because that feels super weird. But I hope that you feel encouraged from some pretty heavy text this week. I will see you next week.